Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What? Or should I say howdy, Holly? Yeehaw, Dave. All right. Welcome to the country edition of the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Kind of. We're kind of tying in country and rock. It's country rock. We're talking country. I got to go to Nashville for the first time. I had to go to the Country Music Hall of Fame. You and didn't I, have to. You chose to. No, 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 no. This was mandatory. This is, you know, for if you're self-imposed, yeah, self-imposed, if you're me, you have to go. And I did. And I was thrilled that there was this exhibit called Western Edge, the Roots and Reverberations of Los Angeles Country Rock. And it's amazing. It starts from the early 60s to the 80s, uh, follows everyone from the Dillards and Graham Parsons all the way up to the Blasters and Los Lobos and Lone Justice. Just an amazing exhibit. So I was after I left, like I got an idea for, for a podcast episode. I got to talk more about this. Yeah, I need to talk to people about this. So I reached out to the Country Museum and they were fabulous. And they hooked me up with Michael Gray and Michael McCall. Michael Gray is the Vice President of Museum Services and Michael McCall is the Senior Writer and Editor for the Country Music Hall of Fame. So they are in the know. They certainly are. And now we are in the know. And soon I, you will be in the know. By listeners. the way, they were the curators of this exhibit. Yeah, it's quite an endeavor. And we're going to get into all the nuts and bolts of uh, what went into putting this together and how they came across a lot of these nudie suits and albums and great stories. So we're going to get into it. We're going to talk with Michael Gray and Michael McCall. And we're also going to get into social media again, right? We are. We are. So please check us out on social media where you will find outtakes of this interview with the Michaels and also of the many interviews we have done over the years on social media at WDDIM podcast and on YouTube where you can see our faces at What Difference Does It Make podcast. Very nice. Okay, so why don't we get right into it? This is Michael Gray and Michael McCall from the Country Music Hall of Fame on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Hi. Hi, everybody. Are you guys in the same office? Nope, we're on different floors. Same building. <laughs> yes, it, we're in the same building. <laughs> it's a big building. I was there and I was shocked. I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't be shocked because it is Music City and you're, you guys I think, are... <laughs> I think people are surprised at how big we are, but it's 550,000 square feet, Michael? Is that right? 350,000. 350, okay, sorry. Yeah. Oh, not as impressive. Long, <laughs> floors, you know, yeah. We love talking about music. We're, we're all yours. <laughs> Perfect. You've come to the right place. <laughs> first of all, I mean, it was actually my first trip to Nashville. So it was, you know, I, I had the places I, I had to go to the Ryman, I had to go to the Grand Ole Opry. And of course, I had the Country Music Hall of Fame. Yeah. And I was thrilled when I got there that there's this amazing curated area for the Los Angeles country rock scene that happened in the 60s and 70s. And um who was the person who, who thought of this? Because, I, I, you know, I knew it was like this micro niche scene. You know, I grew up in the, in the early 80s and unfortunately I never got to. I did go to the rock shows at the Palomino, but I never really got to yeah. see like the, uh, you know, the, the country acts there or, or at the Troubadour. But what spurred this on? Yeah, I'll, I'll take that one. This is uh, Michael Gray. And, um, you know, at the Country Music Hall of Fame, for those of you who have not been here, we do have like a core exhibit that is basically a timeline that takes you through the, you know, the earliest days of country music through the present. 
But along the way, we have these special temporary galleries where we can tell other stories. And where the exhibit is for Western Edge, it happens to be our largest temporary gallery space. It's 5,000 square feet. And Michael McCall and I and the other curators really love working on exhibits for this room, for this gallery, because we spend years developing the concept and doing the research and creating the exhibit, collecting the artifacts and photos. We have so much space in this particular gallery that it really gives us a chance to make connections and look at communities and subgenres and really take like a, a real deep dive. You know, a lot of our other special exhibits tend to be more biographical. Like right now we have an exhibit on Patty Loveless and Eric Church and Dick Curlis. But this gives us a chance to kind of like, yeah, look look at a, like really take a deep dive into a, a specific story. We also redesigned the whole room. We tear out the carpet, repaint it, build walls. Um, it always looks different from each exhibit to the next because we keep it up for a few years. So and so in this room, we've looked at other communities. You know, we've, we, we did one on Bakersfield, California, which is, of course, where Buck Owens and Merle Haggard and others came from. So we've told that story. Recently, we did an exhibit about Austin, Texas, and the country music scene there. So it just felt like you know we have to we have you know we have to remember that we're not the uh, Nashville Music Hall of Fame, we're the Country Music Hall of Fame, and we have to look at other cities and Los Angeles, you know, and what happened there, you know, just seemed prime for us to tell that story. That's really kind of how it came about. This is Michael McCall, but we also we look at ways that country music influences other parts of culture at times. And in this case, you know, with rock and roll and pop music, they very distinctly drew on country music on purpose to create a style of country music or rock music and pop music that had been different than anything that had been done before that. For this exhibit and for the other exhibits, do you have a pitch meeting? How do you come up with the ideas for the exhibits? You know, that's a great question. And we don't, there is no like science to it. There's no exact formula to it. We do have a staff of curators and historians and writers and editors, the editorial team. And usually the ideas stem from that group. You know, a lot of times it just takes one or two people on staff to really get on fire about an idea and just start making a case to our colleagues and saying, man, this is should be a great story, and this is why we should tell the story, and this is why now is the time to tell that story. And then kind of once we get it together, then we start, you know, pitching it to our CEO and making sure that he's okay with it and all that. But it, it's really just um, the historians getting excited about a, a particular idea. The exhibit opened in 2022, but it was in 2019. Marty Stewart was our artist-in-residence that year. You know, as the artist in residence, we just gave him the stage to our CMA theater, which holds close to 800 people. And we say the stage is yours. Do whatever you want. Bring whatever guest you want, whatever themes you want to explore in your music. And there was a show where he brought Roger McGuinn and Chris Hillman of The Birds on as his special guest. And as soon as we knew that they were going to be in the building with us that day, you know, we carved out the day and really like, especially with Chris Hillman, like showed him around the museum and got to know him and his wife, Connie, really well and started sharing with them our ideas and vision for this exhibit. And to me, that's kind of when this exhibit really got rolling was, was that show in 2019. In, in our meetings, had a lot of debating about what this will be, what it will cover, who will be included. In this case, we I think we started at one point with California Country Rock, looking at including some of the San Francisco bands of Creedence Clearwater David Grisman or the Grateful Dead, right, people like yeah. that. But, um, but eventually we found that this 
community that came out of the Troubadour and the Ash Grove, which was a built influential small club. And then later by the eighties, the Palomino as well, that there were communities that came out around those clubs that people who came from all over the United States and some places, England and Canada, but all formed around meeting each other in these places and then started forming bands and really all played on each other's records and wrote for each other. And, you know, sometimes changed bands, you know, mm-hmm. uh, came the you other know, two or three different bands, members of that would form another band. So it just seemed like this really tight, important community that ended up having such a big influence on American music from the seventies on. It was uh, so influential. And then at one point in the seventies, one of the, about the hugest music in the country or, or the world, Eagles and Leonard Ronstadt and some of the other big stars. One of my favorites is a song called Long, Long Time, which he actually ended up recording that in Nashville with Nashville musicians, but it's still part of the story. I mean, given that she was... Yeah, I mean, that's such a great ballad. Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the songs that kind of kind of set up her big launch after that, but that, one, that song did get a lot of attention at the time. Love will bite Take things in stride A lot of the music over the decades since then uh, has been influenced by what came out of that, the way they wrote, the way they mixed records, the way the instrumentation was done, um, the harmonies uh, were all influential, certainly on country music from the 80s on, but, you know, the Americana genre and, uh, and pop music and rock music, you see influences that come out of that, and, and you see people cite that. You mentioned Marty Stewart and Chris Hillman. I was wondering if they helped with the curation. Was there like a, a person you know, like a Willie Nelson or someone where you're like, yeah. did, did this really happen? Or, or, you know, you know, you've got, you, you have a whole staff of writers and stuff, but you, you want to go to the source. So was there a person who was like that? This is the guy we got to talk to. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we definitely did all our research, reading all the, reading all the books and accounts and that kind of thing. But we also had access to just about all the living musicians. We did well over 20 lengthy film interviews with, you know, everybody from Chris Hillman, where we interviewed him at the Bar of the Troubadour, to Dwight Yoakam, to uh, members of Los Lobos, and Dave Alvin of the Blasters, and Maria McKee of Lone Justice, and just on and on, you know, Taj Mahal. And so we were letting the Eagles and Richie Fure and, you know, Jeff Hanna of the Nitty Great Dirt Band. So on and on, we had people from all through there that were, uh, if we picked one person, Chris Hellman was probably as, uh, and, and his wife, Connie, who was great with connecting us with other people, with advocating for the exhibit, just being a very positive force for us all the way through. So, you know, Dave Alvin, some in the eighties and then Dwight were both real helpful, but, uh, but Chris Hellman was really great all the way through it. So. Yeah. We, we put out a, uh, 
a catalog with this exhibit, over 100 pages. And at some point in the in the catalog, refer to uh, Chris Helmet as the linchpin of, of oh. the scene. Because without, you know, spending too much time on it, you know, here's a, a kid in his teens playing bluegrass music in a band with a great name called the Scottsville Squirrel Workers, you know, um, in, in Southern California. And then he's, you know, with, with the Golden State Boys. And then he's with the Birds and the Flying Burrito Brothers, later working with Manassas and, um, you know, eventually uh, the Desert Rose Band, who are having mainstream commercial country hits in the 80s, which is about the time where we exit the story. It's about the time Dwight Yoakam and the Desert Rose Band are having mainstream success is kind of where we start winding down our story. Woke up this morning, happy as could be. I looked out my window, what's that I see? Coming up the sidewalk, just as plain as day. Well, here comes trouble that I never thought I'd see since you went away. Hello, trouble. Yeah, and uh, how did you determine the era? I mean, was it in the early '60s with the the Dillards, or who was what was the uh, what was like the first band that that started the scene, or what what was the spark? As we looked at it, we realized all of them came out of folk music, really more than uh, which, which included bluegrass and mountain music and jug band music and and blues. Uh, so they a lot of at that time in the late '50s, a lot of young musicians got real into folk and rings acoustic music you know it was as rock and roll sort of became bubblegum music they were and bob dylan and pete seeger and joan baez people were rising that became a real influential sound and on the west coast kingston trio were real influential and that led to you know, them having interest in traditional music which had them going to the ash grove and then this band from missouri the dillards show up and those guys are expert musicians but they're also the same age as these young kids who are just going so they have these guys in their early 20s who are playing to teenagers and then other people in their early 20s, but they're virtuoso musicians. They play as well as Flam Scruggs and Bill Monroe and some of the big influences there, but they have fun. Where the mm-hmm. Southeast bluegrass guys kind of stand real stiff and don't move. The Dillards are smiling and joking and moving around the stage, and it just related with them. became really the Dillards and the Kentucky Colonels, which had uh, Clarence White, the great guitar player. Um, so really, I think Clarence White's guitar and Doug Dillard's banjo were almost the two key instruments that led to so many people picking up those guitars, but also trying to play them really well. Yeah. <laughs> so that I think, you know, both those bands, and Lonely Rolling White, the Kentucky Colonels, and then and some of the other stuff that was going on with the Dillards. And the Dillards were on Andy Griffith's show as were the Kentucky Colonels on some point. So they both had several appearances there and got nationwide audiences. It led to the birds in the Buffalo Springfield and Linda Ronstadt and, and a lot of things that really launched that whole scene. I'm not that familiar with the Ashgrove. 
Holly and I have been to the Troubadour and, you know, I've been, I've been to the Palomino. I've heard about the Ashgrove. Can you tell me what it, what was it that made the Ashgrove so special that you wanted to showcase it in the museum? The Ashgrove was a folk club and also a political gathering spot for people. So they would have, they would bring in the great blues artists, Muddy Waters and Alan Wolf and Johnny Hooker. They'd also bring in, you know, just roots music from Elizabeth Cotton to, Doc Watson to the Montville Monroe and Flat Scruggs. Johnny Cash would play there once. So you had, you know, this, this sort of scene that was coming out of New York and, you know, all over the country when they'd come to LA, that's where the traditional musicians would play. Through that is a real small club. Um, they encouraged interaction with the audience, both John McEwen, who ended up in the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, and then Steve Martin, the comedian, who's a great banjo player, would go in and stand right in front of, or sit right in front of Doug Dillard, and John would have his banjo. And try to, you know, you can imagine being a few feet in front of somebody and playing your instrument right in front of them. But he was trying to do the fingering and watching Doug and figuring out what he was playing. Mm. So they really studied this stuff. And it was kind of an educational club as well as it was a, you know, entertainment spot. But then they'd go to the Troubadour and they'd kind of work out their own music, you know. So that's the Troubadours where they played. Ashgrove is where they learned. Some of the people we've talked about have did play the Ashgrove on occasion. But mostly the Troubadour was sort of their their ground of uh, where they, they found their sound. Who was the person behind the Ashgrove? Ed and Bernie Pearl were the owners of the Ashgrove, and they had some financing help. Um, but Ed, Ed was very political and politically motivated. And a lot of his connection to music was because he saw it as, as a you know sort of political art form um, in talking to you know working class and blue-collar people. One of the problems they had staying open is they kept getting firebombed by you know the John Birch Society. <laughs> I don't want to say who did it, but, uh, but they knew they were getting... <laughs> Firebomb sometimes by Cuban Cuban nationals because they're having uh, some meetings that were maybe seen as uh, you know against Cuba, for instance. Um, so they had a lot of things that were causing them some issues because people would attack the club, you know, and in a very fiery part of our time, you know, much much like today. Looks like it was on Melrose. When did it close? Seventy. Sometimes you know, it had two or three closings because of the fire bombings. And there's some question whether that last the last fire that really did a lot of damage was a firebomb or that they had bad electricity wires. Sometimes that was an issue too. So sometime in the seventies it's closed. And I think it's a comedy, one of the comedy clubs now. So it's at the same location. Oh, maybe it's uh yeah, it could be the improv, I guess, maybe. Maybe I'll, yeah, I'll have, yeah. I'll do some research yeah. on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some more covert talking issues over there. That. <laughs> we are talking to Michael Gray and Michael McCall. They are from the country music hall of fame. Uh, The time has come to take a break, so we will return shortly. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. 
I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. On the What Difference Does It Make podcast with our guests, Michael McCall and Michael Gray of the Country Music Hall of Fame. These Ashgrove meetings didn't go to the Troubadour, did they? No, no. The the political part was Ed Pearl. Um, You know, the owner, uh, Doug Weston of the Troubadour, was was not, you know, he was a businessman and very interested in music and and folk music. And at first protested the the first times the drums and electricity were brought and electric instruments were brought on the stage. Mm. But, uh but ended up being a really key figure in supporting all these guys and bring them on. And he'd make them sign up for a week, uh, which later became a problem because he also had these contracts where they had to play the troubadour once he gave you a week's uh, time. But it also let them play four or five nights in front of their audience. So they got really good at playing together and, and, and as young guys are developing a, a pretty distinct sound. Michael Nesmith was a host uh, of the Monday night Hoot Night. Hoot Natty, yeah. Hoot Nanny, yeah, it's like yeah. a Hoot Nanny. So they called it Hoot Night and plays it, but he hosted it and was working, you know, playing at the Troubadour when somebody came and said uh, he signed a publishing deal from his from somebody hearing him play. And then the publisher saw an ad for this band that somebody was forming to, to be a TV band and uh, and suggested he go and audition. And he became a member of the Monkees. And the Monkees' first record have a couple songs with steel guitar on the Mike Rowe, Bobby Jean's Blues. Heartache, sorrow, no longer lonely Nights of waiting finally won me Happiness is all rolled up in you And now with you as inspiration I look toward a destination Sunny, bright, that once before was blue I have no more than I did before But now I've got all that I need For I love you and I know you love me Everybody that we talked to from that era cited the Troubadour as just like a cultural center, like a place where they were all hanging out at the bar and meeting each other. And as Michael McCall mentioned earlier, that that's where they were like, you know, writing songs for each other and joining each other's bands, dating each other. You know, all that was just kind of a lot of that was happening right there at the bar. And then Ronstadt had this great line where she said, uh, you know, if I ever had a band member quit, I just walked into a Troubadour bar and picked one out. If I ever broke with my boyfriend, I just walked into a Troubadour bar and picked out a new one. So. <laughs> I mean, that's how the Eagles were born. The Eagles were formed there. Yeah. 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 And they, they watched, they really studied Poco and the Flying Burrito Brothers. Both Don Henley and Glenn Fry would go to those shows and study those bands and then go back and talk about what they did right and what they did wrong. Which was in some cases, you know, the Burrito Brothers were a little sloppy and sometimes stoned and drunk on stage. Poco was this great live band, but didn't have really tight 
catchy choruses and stuff and weren't going quite as in the way where the Eagles kind of pushed this together into a, a tighter, you know, more commercial sound in a way. So, uh, but they were very influenced by following both those bands. And uh, Poco had these great harmonies, which was the Eagles had to, to definitely base their sound on. Well, there's just a little bit of magic in the country music we're singing. So let's begin. We're bringing you back down home where the folks are happy. Sitting, picking out a grin. Casually, you and me will pick up the pieces. Ah, somebody yelled out at me. Country music and company kind of makes it on a Sunday. Yeah, well, th- yeah, that was kind of like Linda Ronson. They just, we need a new guitarist. Let's get someone from Poco. Let's just bring yeah, Right, right. <laughs> exactly. You know, you think of Crosby, Stills, and Nash had a member of the Birds and had a member of Buffalo Springfield, you know. Poco had Jim Messina, who was one of the founding members who went on to, you know, had been in Buffalo Springfield for a little while, but then formed Loggins and Messina. So you just see these keep going, and, you know, all these groups keep kind of forming. Stephen Stills and Chris Hillman later had a band. Mm. You hear they were all very supportive of each other, and especially Linda Ronstadt. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. really all of everybody we talk to thinks so highly of her and talks to her as one of the glues of a real encourager and somebody who loved country music. And, you know, her first album had, you know, Nashville songs. She said that purposely on that first album, she wanted to take Nashville music and give it a California twist. And she had, you know, songs like Break My Mind and Silver Threads and Golden Needles, which were country hits. But she also had songs by Randy Newman and Bob Dylan on the album. So you can see that mix that the birds kind of started also showing up with, uh, with the Ronstadt and others. The birds, sweetheart of the rodeo album, even the, the first cut, you ain't going nowhere is pretty iconic for the beginnings of country rock from an LA band. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Flat so swift, rain won't lift, gate won't close, feelings close, get your mind off winter time, you ain't going nowhere. Okay, this is a long-term exhibit. This exhibit's going to run a couple of years. So the discovery of the nudie suit, this was last year. That seems fortuitous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could tell you a little bit about what happened there is on the Flying Burrito Brothers album, Gilded Palace of Sin, that's kind of considered a cornerstone of country rock music. It's an iconic album and an iconic album cover. And on the cover, you have four of the members, Graham Parsons and Chris Hillman and Sneaky Pete and Chris Etheridge, all wearing these nudie suits, these rhinestone suits that were created in Hollywood by a designer named Manuel. And we had three of the suits on display for the opening of the exhibit in um, September of 2022. And we were basically told that Chris Etheridge's suit was like lost to history, that it was stolen out of the band manager's vehicle and that we'll never find it. And so we went ahead. I mean, we did our due diligence. We tried. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> we tried really hard. Yeah. You know, we, we were a lot, we were looking for it, but 
we just didn't have it in time for the opening and basically opened the exhibit with just three of the suits on display in the center of the exhibit. That was September 2022. Come around Thanksgiving of 2022, we started getting wind that Chris Etheridge's suit had surfaced. It turned out, um, it's a long story, but the short version is that Elton John had ended up with the suit. Just to be clear, Elton John had <laughs> no role in <laughs> stealing the suit, but he, the suit ended up back at Nudie's shop in Hollywood, and Elton John went there and, and bought it. And ended up with the suit and like even wore it at Bernie Toppin's wedding. And, you know, th- there are pictures of him wearing it in the early it, In the video for your song, uh, you know, his great ballad, he's playing, he's wearing that suit jacket. Yeah. And, and anyway, you know, Elton's very well known for um, auctioning off a lot of his stage clothes for charity. And he ended up doing that. And the suit ended up with a collector. And as that collector was getting older, decided that he or she wanted to sell that outfit and ended up on an auction block. And Chris Etheridge's daughter, Nisha, ended up buying the suit. She went all the way to London to to purchase the suit, her father's nudie suit, you know, brought it back to the States. And she was very clear from the very beginning that once it was in her hands, she wanted it to come to the Country Music Hall of Fame to join the other three suits. So now, if you come visit the Western Edge exhibit at the Hall of Fame, you will see all four suits on display together. I've got a picture of that. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about nudie suits because I never knew I could have gotten what in in LA. It was on Lancashire, and I never I never knew that closed down. I think before I, I could have purchased one, but I always assumed it was natural. But please tell me about the nudie suit and and why it became like the uniform, the uniform de rigueur <laughs> for country stages. You know, there was this great clothing designer, Nudie Cohen. Yes, a takeoff of a longer name, Eastern European name, who ended up in LA. Started designing, you know, for, I think Gene Autry was one of the first people to hire him. Realizing that this, the way rhinestones reflect spotlights uh, drew attention to stars. And, uh, and especially in those days as they started playing bigger places. And then Gene was, you know, touring the country, riding his uh, horse in arenas, just and then drawing crowds that way because he was a big cowboy star as well as a singing star. So he would wear these suits just to and, and ride around these arenas and get a lot of attention for it. So then other country stars started picking up on us. I think Williams had nudie suits that weren't rhinestones, but were cut in a really Western style. People like Webb Pierce and Lefty Frizzell and Porter Wagner became famous for these great suits they had. And they often had them specially designed with some iconic images on them that might refer to them under hit songs or to their nickname, uh, anything like that. And it just became a, you know, something that country music became identified with. Uh, there were other people in other forms of music and entertainment have used them, but it's a, uh, it became, it kind of became a country identity to it because country stars really used it a lot. And they realized uh, how much that would sort of draw attention. And and sometimes more than other genres, country stars like to dress up a bit, at least in those days, and, uh, and kind of present themselves as uh, often coming out of being poor and working class and or working on farms. And it's just you know, a little bit of bling. Always sort of, uh, you know, you, you see people who come out of the poor areas that when they get money, they often want to, you know, sort of show it off a little bit and country stars were that way. It started out in, in Hollywood though, because of the film, because of Gene Autry and filming in, in mm-hmm. Hollywood. Yes. And so then, yes, it, then exactly. it, that's how it, okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it, it was, you know, movie stars had his clothes, a lot of Western wear movies would, would use his clothing and the way it was cut. They did a lot of that Mexican kind of Bolero short jacket, mm-hmm. you know, would, would kind of turn into the good jean jackets and things like that were designed for cowboy movies. Um, you know, there were, there were people outside of, uh, country music who you know, were very big on nudie suits and 
you know, Western wear was a, was a big part of it. Did anyone carry on the tradition after the shop closed? Sure, yeah. N- yeah. Nudie's um, son-in-law, his name is um, um, Manuel, and he's still active today in Nashville. He's he's in Nashville now, but he started, you know, at Nudie's shop there in, in Southern California. People like Marty Stewart, Jim Lauderdale, you know, they're they're definitely wearing Manuel. Dwight Yoakam, we mentioned. Dwight Yoakam. Mm-hmm. You know, even like Lil Nas X, the video, the suit that he's wearing and his Old Town Road video wasn't created by Manuel, but it was inspired by, you know, those old nudie suits. Um, and and we actually have that suit here at the Country Music Hall of Fame, too. So, yeah, there are definitely, you know, I know uh, Beck, Jack White, people like that. My, Mike Mills of R.E.M., I know he, yeah, he wore yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> he used yeah. to wear those. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's a great look, yeah. Graham Parsons famously, he had the, the marijuana suit. Is, is that the Hall of Fame, too? Yeah. We, we it was part of the Burrito Brothers. Yeah, yeah. It's part of the Burrito Brothers display now, but that's a suit that we've had here at the Country Music Hall, Hall of Fame on display for at least 20 years, more than 20 years, but it's pretty iconic. We have to be careful when we bring the school groups through the museum <laughs> because it's full of, uh, there's like, you know, naked people on it and pills and you know <laughs> marijuana leaves and lots lots of stuff i think he even has poppies which is heroin he has uh those sugar cubes for lsd so it's it's, it's a drugstore suit so adorable yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it also has a big cross you know shiny cross in the right. back and going up the legs so it's a it's quite a piece of work Amazing. How do you maintain these things? Clothing, you know? Yeah, we have, you know, we have people on staff who that's their, their specialty, their training. You know, they've been trained and um, they've gone through museum programs and, and at schools and they've just become experts on how to do that. When artifacts and co- stage costumes are, you know, are in our archive, you can imagine it. The lighting is controlled, the temperature and humidity is all controlled, and, and then same in the actual galleries, too. We just control all that, like how much light is shining on the suits at any given time. And we also we'll rotate items off display, too, once in a while, just to give them a break, to get them out of the light. Yeah, sometimes, you know, gravity kind of pulls on clothing, so they the way they our curators do it is they you know, put it in a box, put it in the dark store it and let it kind of revive, revive itself a little bit. And the same with instruments, you got to watch how they're, right. make sure they're tuned so they're not being, the strings aren't pulling on them. The Chris Hillman's suit that we have in the Flying Burrito Brothers came from the Gene Autry Museum. They came out to make sure that how we were displaying it, that there wasn't any nap sunlight hitting it. They wanted to make sure that it was high museum standards in the way that we were displaying their suit because it belongs to them. Mm-hmm. Chris, Chris donated it to their museum years ago. So I'm curious with both of you, did you have an, a love for country music? Is that how you ended up at the Country Music Hall of Fame? Or Yeah, I mean, there's, man, well, wow, yeah, there's a lot of people on staff here who are just ate up with the music. It's kind of one of those jobs where our livelihood intersects with our hobby and our passions, you know. So sometimes I don't know where my job ends and my hobby starts because it all it's all bleeds together. With me, kind of got into country music through rockabilly music. Uh, people like Jerry Lee Lewis and Gene Vincent. I was real into that and then just wanted to like know who they were influenced by. And then, of course, that led me to people like Hank Williams and, and just went from there. But I'm also of the age where, speaking, you know, kind of tied to this Western Edge exhibit, um, you know, Dave Elvin and the Blasters are a big part of it. And I was of the age when the Blasters were kind of at their peak when I was like in my teens. And so uh, they were a big influence on me and getting me into roots music. And I I wanted to listen to the artists that inspired them, you know, and so that got me into a lot of rockabilly and roots music. 
And I will say at the Country Music Hall of Fame, we take a very large umbrella approach to country music. So it's bluegrass, it's folk, it's Americana, it's today's mainstream hit country music. We just embrace it all. And as Michael said at the, at the beginning of this, we look we like to look at how country music and roots music interfaces and interacts with other genres like R and B and rock. We're always exploring all those things. I was just I was just wanted to hear Michael McCall tell his <laughs> yeah. yeah, what's your origin well, story? What's... We're, we're both music journalists, by the way. We we both came out of working as music critics and music reporters in Nashville, which was part of it because of that, that got us into the Nashville community where I spent a lot of time with musicians and doing interviews with people. And I came here from San Francisco, but it uh, lived in Gary, Indiana and Arkansas before that. So I, I'm a little older, Michael. And so this, it was high school in the seventies. So a lot of the 60s, 70s music that are part of this exhibit, I was, I grew up, you know, I had eight tracks with Neil Young and Linda Ronstadt, you know, but I came to Nashville to really be a rock and roll reporter for the afternoon newspaper. But within a year or two here, the man who'd been a country music writer had, had passed away. And all of a sudden I'm meeting Loretta Lynn and you know, I traveled on a USO tour at Loretta Lynn to Korea and the Philippines, met George Jones, met Bill Monroe, you know, uh, hanging out with the Opry. I helped Minnie Pearl write a column for the newspaper and meeting these, you know, iconic country music stars. And you just see how special it is. And I'd like, you know, before I came here, I'd like to Emmy Lou Harris records, and Jerry Jeff Walker records, you know, there had a lot of Southern rock in my record, in my collection. I had a Hank Williams two record set that I loved, um, but I wasn't as grained in country music as some people who come to Nashville. But I learned it quickly because I uh, spent a lot of time to write on the, in the ground, you know, talking to musicians in the 80s and 90s, uh, working for various publications. I was the editor of Country Music Magazine for a while and worked for the LA Times as their country national stringer for several years with Randy Lewis and Robert Hilburn. So I just had this connection of talking to, to musicians over 20, 30 years before I came here. And it just gave me a good grounding. And, and then there's no better place to learn even more about all of country music than to be in this building and have our archives and library to draw on. Yeah. And well, I mean, that, that's kind of my story as well. I mean, when when I was growing up, the Eagles were not cool at all. You yeah, know, they yeah, were just, right. yeah, like, I don't want to listen to this. I was, li- you know, I, but I was into the, you know, like the, the punk scene, I, you know, suddenly I'm listening yeah. to X, but then they morph into the knitters. And then also on slash records are the blasters. And then like Robert Hilburn of the times would write about mm-hmm. lone justice. And I'm like, okay, well, is this good stuff? And so, yeah, it was yeah. kind of like, then you start learning about this music and then you travel backwards. So it's uh, yeah. like, where did this all come from? And all of a sudden, you know. Right. Um, you know, Randy, Randy Lewis from the LA Times wrote our main essay in the, in our, in the exhibit book along with it. So we were talking mm-hmm. to Robert over and a lot. And then and, and a lot of their reporting informed what we were doing as we came along with this. But yeah, I, had to, I was in San Francisco and was a big fan of X and would see the blasters and those logos would come up there on double bills mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Rosie Flores would come up and play. It was great. And, and, and a lot of my interest in, in punk rock was sort of in, in really basic emotional music. And, and I saw a lot of that in country music as I learned more about it too. I saw the blasters open for Queen. Yes. Wow. And, and that one, one has some really funny stories about that. <laughs> oh, is that right? I, I imagine they do. I, I had to double check myself. I remember it was it was in 19, yes. I thought it was 78. It was actually 1980 here in L.A. at the Forum. And it was opening. You know, you don't bands. You don't think mesh. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was still punk. It was country punk. Like They yeah. must have been thrilled so, that you guys reached out to them. I, you know, I saw a number of the interviews in the exhibit. I would imagine like, really, you want to talk to me about this micro scene? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think especially the guy, people from Lone Justice or Long Riders, 
were particularly surprised at the interest we had in them, you know, because they they see themselves as a little bit of a footnote at this point, but they realize that when you look at that saying, how important they were to it. Okay, wait, go back to the blaster stories of touring with Queen. <laughs> David, David was very funny about it. Just to, you know, the, the, they weren't that well received in, in some of the places they played them. One of my favorite artifacts in the Western Edge exhibit is uh, Dave Elvin's um, Fender Mustang guitar. And he said that, you know, back in the day, he used to have to use it basically as a shield, you know, when people were throwing <laughs> bottles on stage and, and things like that. And we, and we also have his beat up leather jacket that he wore like in the late seventies and early eighties. And it's a nice contrast to those nudie suits we've been talking about. Sometimes it was when they were opening for rock bands, they'd get things thrown at them. And sometimes when they went to Southern to Orange County and played for the more hardcore punk bands who didn't think that a rockabilly band was punk enough, they'd get bottles thrown at them there too. I always admire that though. I mean, like, you know, the Rolling Stones invited Prince to open for them. Like they're, they're always trying to introduce fans to, to new types of music. And, uh, yeah, some, I I think they're more open now to, to that. I think back in the seventies, not so much. Seventies and eighties. They were a little tough. Yeah. But if, if you were a real music fan, you appreciated that. Exactly. Los Lobos told us a funny story about opening for um, Johnny Rotten or P.I. I guess it was P.I.L. Where, where they had to play a few songs and run because they were, everything was being thrown at them. You know? <laughs> yeah. It would happen no matter what they were playing. He said uh, Louis Perez of Los Lobos said that gave him resolve that they were even more determined to conquer the scene after that. You know? Yeah, they're playing around. It's crazy. Yeah, Los Lobos has been the same five guys since 1975 or something, you know, whenever they started. It's been around their 50th year anniversary here recently, uh, you know, in early, the very early parts of the band, but it's the same guys. You know, they've added a saxophone player in 19, uh, who had his 40th year anniversary. <laughs> so he's a young guy in a band. Who they stole from the Blasters, right? Wasn't it? <laughs> so from the Blasters, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Dave, you sent me a photo of Maria McKee's, was the boots from the exhibit when you were there? Yeah, it could have been the could have been that. I, actually, I was more impressed with like these um, the flyers, like from the from the Palomino. Yeah, yeah, they look yeah. gr- they're like pristine. Like, yeah. what? How, where did you come across some of this this stuff that was you know it's now forty so, years old and still looks great? Yeah, this came from Ryan Hitchcock and uh, primarily who was the guitar player and a founding member with Maria McKee of the of Lone Justice. He had a really good scrapbook that he kept and. Uh, Maria had a couple of things. Uh, Marvin Etzioni was in the band, had some stuff. But Ryan was really the sort of guy who held on to a lot of those things. And he gave, he brought out this whole big scrapbook and let us go through it one by one and pick out pages that he would. And he took and, you know, we took them and got them Xerox for us and digitized and sent to us by a printer there in uh, Los Angeles. And he, so he was great about it. And it was very helpful for us. And that kind of cooperation, you just, you know, like you said, that's something that stands out to you, you know, so. Most musicians are not, in, are not scrap keepers. They don't keep a yeah, scrapbook. Yeah. But, we had a guy here in Nashville who lived in the area, grew up in that area and had a, uh, the original nitty, the nitty gray dirt bands first poster ever from like 1965 or something, you know, and, and he was at that show. So, yeah. so that kind of stuff is just priceless. Mary Catherine Alden was so good, who worked at the Ashgrove has these incredible posters that she gave us. So. Who are these detectives who like track down? We're got, we we hear word of, uh, you know, these boots that are in town. Who's doing all this stuff? Our staff, you know, just (laughs) one conversation leads to another, you know, we're, we'll be talking to somebody and they'll say, Oh, have you talked to so-and-so? And, And, you know, I remember um, when we did our film interview with Louis Perez of Los Lobos in LA, he's like, Oh, you need to talk to this 
photographer that was at all our early shows and he ended up having photos of Los Lobos pictured with Dwight Yoakam, you know, I mean, like I'm at the same show and, you know, things like that. Just one thing always leads to another. And and that's our job is to track it down and build people's trust, you know, that, that we're going to take care of their items and tell their story correctly. Of course, a lot of people, a lot of musicians in Nashville know us really well and have been here. But when we go to other cities like Los Angeles, sometimes people are just getting to know us for the first time. So it does take some time to build those relationships and build that trust. And then with the artifacts, it involves shipping. And, you know, this is much different than if you're living a couple of miles on the road here. And if you're, you're thousands of miles away, you know, so we have to get those hired an art truck that went from L.A. and sweep through uh, New Mexico to stop at J.D. Souther's home, who gave us manuscripts that, for songs that he wrote for the Eagles and for uh, Leonard Ronstadt and for James Taylor, you know. And we make sure that we that we take the highest quality of uh, packing and shipping and trucking and getting things to us so that these artifacts are well taken care of. But you have to make sure that you can convince people that's what we're doing so that they know these very precious artifacts to them will be in good shape. How long did it take to get Don Henley's uh, cooperation? <laughs> we always we're think like he... On that. <laughs> yeah, we'll let you know when it happens. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that's funny, yeah. Cause I... <laughs> Bernie Ledden was really great who lives here in town and, and was really the countryest player in the band because he played banjo mm-hmm. and acoustic guitar and, and lap seal and some other things. So he kind of, you know, the, the very early Eagle stuff, he would, he brought the more country element, even though Don is from Texas and, you know, so, and Bernie was very cooperative with us. So that helped. And the J.D. Souther was great. And, you know, and he's, Don Henley's one of his best friends and, you know, he had manuscripts and instruments and, and other things that he lent to us that were very important. So, and then helped tell the Eagle story as well as his own. And he was, you know, literally in Ronstadt was her lover for, a couple of years and had stuff with Linda and good stories to tell about everybody that were really insightful for us and helpful. Holly and Dave, that's another thing is once we open a major exhibit like this, we also flesh it out with dozens of public programs. I mean, we, we can only tell so much of the story in the exhibit itself. And then, you know, we can tell more of the story in the exhibit catalog. You know, we do a lot of panel discussions and Q&As and film screenings and concerts. You know, not only did we do like a lengthy film interview with J.D. Souther before the exhibit opened while we were doing our research, but we also had him come make a public appearance here where Michael McCall, you know, interviewed him in front of an audience and talked to him for 90 minutes about his songwriting career. And, you know, we've had a a lot of the other musicians involved with the exhibit um, have been here too, Chris Hillman and Rodney Dillard and Dave Elvin and and lots of others. All five members at Los Lobos on stage talking here. Uh, before they went, moved to the second stage and played a whole 50th anniversary show. So it was quite a special day for all of us. And uh, we had uh, Tillman and Bernie Ledden together, who are old friends that met wow. each other in San Diego in their teens and have known each other all these years. And so it just, wasn't just interviewing them, but I interviewed both of them. So they both sort of spurred each other on by remembering stories and then keeping each other so honest. <laughs> so, but it was great. They're so warm and friendly and it's been a few together themselves, you know, before and after and their wives, you know, this is kind of thing. I think that sometimes exhibits like this can bring people back together too. who haven't seen each other in a long time. And, you know, we had a big opening concert where, you know, a lot of these people kind of all interacted and played together. And even uh, a man named Kai Clark, who was the son of Gene Clark, who wrote so many of the great bird songs and, and was in Dillard and Clark and, and covered by so many people down the line. Got to come and play and met Chris Hillman, met Bertie Ledden, met all the people who knew his dad really well. And, and, and then hung out with Chris's son, you know, trading stories about being the sons of rock and roll stars, you know. So so that, that kind of stuff is, is great to see, too. 
Yeah, and Bernie did loan us um, one of another one of my favorite artifacts in the exhibit is um, a B bender guitar. Then it's the song that you hear like on "Take It Easy," that mm-hmm. twangy guitar. Yeah, um, it, it's um, kind of this complicated guitar that has all these mechanisms that give it that twang sound. And when we asked um, Bernie if we could borrow it for the exhibit, his one condition was that yeah, but I want you to take the back off the guitar and display it so people can see both sides so they can see that mechanism that's creating that b-bender sound and so so when you come here you can learn about all you can see it and learn all about that too love that Ernest white famously had the first one he they designed it with uh, gene parsons uh, who was another musician not related to graham was also part of these played in poco and some of the other bands came up with this mechanism for the make it sound like a steel guitar a little bit. You, know, you, you take the guitar strap and pull on it. It makes the string lift a little bit and uh, it gives it a steel guitar sound. And, uh, and Bernie's was one of the first after, you know, the design that Gene and Clarence came up with. And Marty Stewart owns the Clarence's guitar and plays it still. So he couldn't loan it to us, although he did loan us some things for this exhibit and other exhibits. So we got one, of the you know, the second one that was made and one of the second wave of guitars that were made this way. It's really cool. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> we haven't talked about Dwight Yoakam, who you probably, he was probably part of the Bakersfield exhibit. And now he's kind of, is he like, he's like the MC of this exhibit right now. He's seen, he's, you got a lot of footage with him and he's, he's kind of telling the story. We, he has a six minute introduction film that we did. Uh, me and the uh, creative director, Warren Denny, went out and spent a couple of days with him at his office and uh, did, you know, one of the two hour, two and a half hour interviews with him. And then, we went through the script we'd written for the introduction of the exhibit and Dwight was so into it and read the script and loved it. But as we were doing it, he kept editing it, you know? So he was adding his own words and we, we rewrote, rewrote as we were going and we had a teleprompter guy that we were driving crazy because <laughs> we're, you know, rewriting it. We were writing it as we go. And then Dwight, what ended up was sort of a, you know, collaboration between the three of us on it. And at some point we were also in the middle of it that, the cameraman had to say me and Warren were in the back and our heads were leaning in trying to look at the teleprompter because you guys are in the shot, but it's just like our heads coming in behind Dwight. So it's kind of, kind of looked like a cartoon. <laughs> it was so cooperative and then very much into it and has continued to be. And, you know, and then he gave a program to Chris Hillman on his Sirius XM show. And Chris has had most of the major figures in the exhibit come talk to him on his show about about that period of music, about the exhibit itself. So again, it's kind of just spurred a lot of uh, activity between all these people because it's brought that, that all back to them. The exhibit is really phenomenal. Who wrote most of the, was that, uh, which which Michael, Mike McCall, Michael McCall, did you write? Michael McCall wrote, wrote uh, virtually all the texts that you read in the exhibit. Yep. Amazing. Yeah. Wonderful really, writer. It, yeah, <laughs> really wonderful. And, and some of the programs that I mentioned earlier um, are available on our website we have a watch and listen page where you can go back and view some of those interviews and concerts and such oh that's great well you guys it's a phenomenal exhibit and i it was just such a thrill to be there they literally had to kick me out it was like we're closing <laughs> sir we're closing <laughs> You're clo- firm about it. You, you really are they were literally like okay let's go <laughs> It's six o'clock. Get out of here. Like, yeah. oh. <laughs> well, I hope to see it. I've been scouring the website. So it, it, Holly, if you it let us know, come, we'll, we'll walk you through it when you get here. So let, I will, let know when you're here, we'll get you some passes. And Thank you. No, yeah. I, I would love that. Oh, so yeah. What, what a thrill. It was really, really nice to, to speak yeah, with I'm you. I'm so glad you liked it. That's yeah. Right. Thanks. Thank, yeah. Thanks. And keep up the good work. <laughs> yeah. 
What? Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, we appreciate you giving us time to talk about it. So. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. All right, Holly, did you learn anything? I learned a lot. And I, I asked it to thank you once again for sending me the, the Maria McKee photos when you were visiting the exhibit. So thank you for that. And I, I do hope to visit the exhibit. I hope you're going to dig a little bit deeper into a lot of these artists and uh, you know, kind of go back a little bit and learn about some of these artists. I, I would start, I, I think a great place to start is this Amazon Music playlist, which you can find on Amazon Music. This music that we're talking about, I love this stuff. Yeah, great stories and just fascinating to kind of learn how curators curate a exhibit such as this. Uh, how do how do they all slap it together? Slap it is a very bad word, which is why I'm not one of the writers for the Country Music Hall of Fame. <laughs> yes. It appears to be very well curated and labor of love, obviously, for these guys. You can look online at countrymusichalloffame.org and see some highlights from the exhibit and some of the others that they have at the Country Music Hall of Fame. That's some great advice. It was really a wonderful chat. I want to thank Jeremy Rush. He's the Senior Director of Public Relations. He's the one who helped put us in touch with uh, Michael Gray and Michael McCall. I also want to thank Buzz Knight. Buzz Knight put me in touch with Paul Kingsbury to Jeremy to the Michaels. So thank you to all those people made for a, a wonderful episode. So thank you to all. Thank you to you, Holly. And thank you to you, Dave. And thank you to Pantheon Podcasts. We are a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family. Anything else? You mentioned uh, um, social media. I'm going to mention social media again. Check us out at WDDIM Podcast and on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. Love it. Okay. Yeah, maybe uh, more country episodes in the new year. Possibly. We'll try. At our pitch meeting, you are free to pitch. Okay. Very good. We'll, we'll have our, our pitch <laughs> meeting coming up. Please subscribe. We have new episodes every Friday. You can find us on our website, WDDIMpodcast.com. That stands for What Difference Does It Make Podcast. And subscribe to our newsletter, please. It's a once a month deal. You'll find out everything that's going on and you'll be up to date with the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Yeah, you don't want to be behind on all this. You got to stay up to date, please. So uh, <laughs> thank you for subscribing. Uh, until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.